Um, so uh, I think that the, the goal of the interview is to explore your approach to innovation and leadership. And I, I would like us to start by defining terms because leadership is a non-rigid term. It has multiple meanings to different people and uh, in different contexts. For instance, in med school, they often talk about a doctor as the leader of the healthcare team. In my master's program, when they talk of leadership, their, their emphasis is on innovation, discovering something new or trying something new, whether it's research or uh, quality improvement, but driving systemic change in some fashion. And in the general culture, there's this notion that everybody's a leader in some sense. So I want us to start by defining leadership. And the same thing with innovation, because innovation also ranges from, you know, some people would say, uh, this is something I realized in my master's degree, that even the littlest thing, you know, that I wouldn't think of as innovation, like uh, adding an extra uh, step in a, in a hospital pathway, they consider that innovation versus, you know, discovering an entirely new process, inventing, uh, you know, the ex vivo lung perfusion system. That's innovation. Yeah. So I wanted you to start by defining these terms for me. What what would you define as leadership? So so I, I think there, there's two things. Like one is um, innovation uh, is, is a term where, where innovation really is bringing a discovery uh, to uh, to uh, application, or or basically bringing in in our field, bringing a discovery to the bedside to change patient care. So in terms of uh, we do research and we do have, discover new things and so on, and that's great. That's new knowledge. That's not innovation. Okay. So discovering ex vivo lung perfusion and putting lungs on the system and figuring out I could keep them alive outside the body for a day is interesting, it's fascinating, it's exciting, but it's not an innovation. The innovation was taking that to the bedside, taking lungs that no one would use, putting it on the system, showing it's safe to use it, transplanting a patient, saving lives, and showing that it was safe, that, that we could now take a lung that would never be used and safely use it and save a life. That's innovation, right? So, so I think that that's important that you understand that innovation is bringing something to reality, to application. And in our field, it's bringing it to the bedside. Mm -hmm. And then there's also innovations in care, in system changes, and so on. And that also crosses over with leadership, because you know when when you talk about leadership. Uh, first of all, you're not a leader if no one's following you, right? People need to see a leader. There are people that want to lead and need to lead, and there are people that need a leader to lead them. They're never going to lead, but with a good leader, they will follow, and they will see the light and see where to go. So I think it's, it's really important to recognize that, I mean, in leadership, there becomes responsibility of, of being at the leading edge of things and looking forward so it, it takes some courage it takes some risk um, and also takes strength to, to sort of say this needs to be changed the, the, the way we're doing it you know we developed lung transplantation in Toronto we the lung preservation solution that is used worldwide was my master's thesis 
Okay, so that was a discovery, and it was an innovation because I actually made it myself and brought it, and we flushed the lungs clinically and showed it was better just like it was in my dog studies. So that was an innovation. But then leadership was, was like, okay, we're doing 20 transplants a year, and 80% of the lung trans lungs available that have their donor card signed don't get used because we can't be sure they're okay. So we got to change the way we do this, right? So it's, it's how do we change the way we do it? Diagnose what's wrong with lungs. Figure out how to fix lungs. And my goal and dream was to, to genetically modify lungs to make them look like self so you won't reject them. So how do you do that? Well, I figured out how to do that in donor animals and so on using vectors, gene therapy, taught myself gene therapy, but then realized, well, in order to do this, you need somewhere to work on the lungs, right? Well, where are you going to work on the lungs? You develop a platform to work on lungs outside the body. That's ex vitro lung perfusion. How do you bring that to the bedside? You then bring it to the bedside, you innovate, you do the clinical trial, you, you, you continue to improve it. Now I've started up a company to build these devices so that they can make it available to all patients around the world. And we've doubled our transplants from 100 a year to 200 a year. So those are sort of the innovation pathway. The other part of the, the pathway where innovation crosses over with leadership is, is how change people's minds, like the change management part of it. That's leadership, right? Because people like to do things the way they always did it. They don't really like change or they're scared to change. In lung transplantation, the idea of, you know, we only use a few lungs because we're not sure they're going to work, um, so we just take the perfect ones. Well, that's easy. Take the perfect ones and save the ones you can, but most people were dying, so that's not good enough. So how can we take lungs that aren't good? Well, we got EVLP, but it's a complicated process, and the surgeon said, well, you know, lung transplant is complicated enough. Like, I don't need to add EPLP on top of that. And then others will say, well, there's more cost to it as well. So why do we need that? So you, you sort of then have to put together, okay, you're worried about this is complicated. Well, simplify the process. Develop a system that makes it simpler and easier to do. Get people to do it for you. So we have organ perfusion specialists. I don't do the EPLP anymore. I do it by phone. I get a phone call. There's a lung. It's not good. Okay, take it. Send it to the EVLP specialist. They put it on the machine. They feed me the data, and I make a decision. I'm going to transplant or I'm not. I've made it easy. So I've changed the whole process, mm. right? Oh, but it's going to add cost to the system. Well, what do you think? When people are sick waiting for lungs, and they're not getting lungs, they're eating up healthcare dollars, mm. multiple admissions to hospital, to ICU, on a ventilator, on ECMO, and so on. It, it, they're very expensive. You get them transplanted and they don't go through that phase, you've saved a whole lot of money there. So spending a bit on EVLP is not such a big deal, and you get a better product. You get a lung that works right away, mm. right? And so the patients do better. So now you've changed the system. You've said, okay, the barrier was is different. And the barrier was it's too hard. Okay, I've, I've shown you I can make it easier. I've shown you you can do more transplants. Your hospitals make more money. You save more lives. Well, it's going to cost more because you're bringing new technology. Well, 
here we've shown you in the cost analysis that it's going to actually save you money in the long run and, and be a benefit to society. So I think that those are the kinds of things where you look for these opportunities to fix something, to improve it, and then make it better. And, and, and by being a practicing lung transplant surgeon, I can do it, mm -hmm. right? So I can show that it can be done, you know, and, and you can do it too. And a lot of times they say, well, you can do it in Toronto. We don't have your kind of resources here. But, but you know, Harvard and Pittsburgh and, and, and Duke and Cleveland Clinic, they do have our kind of resources. And so I've showed them, you you can do it there as well, mm -hmm. right? And, 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 you know, I think that that kind of helps. Yeah. I, I think you identified two very important things. You simply talk about the complicated process of innovation. You know, it's a complex system doing many things at once. But also you talked about how it's important to get buy-in from people. This is something I have a little bit of experience too. I, I have founded two startups, two medical startups. And my biggest problem has always been interacting with the healthcare system because oftentimes I find that there, there's no single decision maker and there are lots of people you need to talk to who need to agree on every single step of the way. And that bureaucracy, you know, makes it a very, very slow process and very difficult to get ahead. So I, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about how I imagine that it gets easier for you as you, you know, you establish your track record in the industry and you have some kind of authority in the industry. But I, I wanted you to talk about how uh, you, you often set up around like, you know, I said about getting buy-in from people and, you know, how you approach, you know, changing, because you're not dealing with just people within one system. Oftentimes you have to deal with people in other hospitals. You know, it's a, a lot of people involved. How do you get buy-in from people like that? Yeah, so so I, I think um, there, there, you're right. In the healthcare system, it's, it's complicated and, and, and there are many people involved. So you're, you're right in buy-in. And even in transplant, the buy-in had to be my hospital, had to be Trillium Gift of Life Network, had to be other hospitals, it had to be, you know, the Ministry of Health, uh, you know, and, and a bunch of people. And even in my hospital, it's like the OR nurses. Well, you know, that's not our job, whatever. And, they, you know, and, and, and somebody else, the, the director of surgery, well, who's going to pay for it? And, and and then the REB, well, this has never been done before, you know, and, and, and it goes on. And the chief of surgery at the time saying, actually, the chief of surgery was an important one. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, when I was bringing EVLP in, I was not the chief of surgery. Mm -hmm. and, and, but, but it was trust and, and your reputation. So ever since I was a medical student, a resident, a fellow, a junior staff, I never failed the institution. Everything I said I would do, I delivered on. So when I came with this totally crazy idea that I'm going to put lungs outside the body and transplant them, um, he gave me, he cut me slack and said, that's really cool. You know, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do a clinical trial. So I'm going to bring it to the OR, you know, and, and, and he said, okay, that's fine. So I brought it to the OR and I got our OR nurses and I said, look, this is the kit. This is how we're going to do it. This is what we'll have to do. Can you help me design the set? What instruments we're going to need? How long should the tubing be in the casing so that when we unwrap it, we don't contaminate? Like these are OR things, right? Um, so I, the surgeon in chief said, fine. But the nurse manager said, 
who's going to pay my nurses to do that? This isn't their job, blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. So, and then, of course, the, the REB was one, you know, they, but that they believe in sciences, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, we showed them the data, but it's pigs. Mm-hmm. Okay, if we could do it in pigs, then it works. Now it's time to do it in humans. And the other part was the patients. So we have meeting groups of the patients. And I went there and stood in front of them and said, you know, this is what we've been doing in the lab and we've shown you can take a pig lung and put it outside the body and keep it for 12 hours this way and then transplant it and this way you can check that the lung works before you put it in and the patients were i want to be the first one you know so they didn't they they were happy to participate and help and we needed their help so in terms of alignment in healthcare. I think it's getting better in terms of everybody understands why we're here, why we come to work. It's for the patient, right? So if I say, look, I've got an idea that I think is going to help save more lives, we can do more transplants and so on, then they're, they're willing to consider it. But, but not everybody has the courage, leadership skills and strength to say, okay, we're going to do something completely different. And this is where you build your own brand or your own reputation for for delivering and being honest, truthful. Like you're not going to be successful every time. Sometimes things you touch won't work, mm. right? But but people have to trust that you have the right intentions and you do have the capabilities that you promise, right? Mm. To, to deliver on it. And that, that's stressful sometimes, right? Mm things don't go right you, you you wear it it's yours right yeah yeah maybe talk a little bit about the process because you, you've talked you've talked about approaching the chiefs uh, uh surgeon chief talked about approaching patients about nurses uh tell me a little bit about the process when when you start thinking about an idea you know what do you start to do how long does it take, you know, to complete a whole cycle of testing and, you know, implementation, execution, uh, evaluation, um, you know, what's the first step you take and how do you proceed from there? Yeah, so, so um, you know, my, my lab, when I started, the, the only job they gave me was being director of thoracic surgery research and there was one technician and one fellow and me, three of us. Um, today, our lab is 130 people working right here, and, and we have a multi-million dollar enterprise doing amazing stuff, gene therapy, cell therapy, growing new lungs, ex vivo lungs, and, and so on. But one of the really important things about the kind of research that I do as an innovator is when, it, when we design the project, we, we sort of have in mind, like you said, the patient, that ultimately we're going to do something to improve the situation, uh, you know, in my case, in, in, in lung transplantation or in the others, it's growing new lungs. Can we create a new lung? So, so ultimately, we want to deliver it to the bedside. So when you design an experiment like that, you have to think about how will you actually bring it to the bedside? So when we talked about ex vivo lung perfusion, we had a goal in mind. Like a lot of times people who do research will do the research sort of for the sake of it or sometimes with the, with the goal, but then not have thought it through to actually how are you going to get it to the bedside. And, and, and 
Have you heard of DMSO? Uh, I'm not sure. No. It, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a, a substance a liquid that many drugs are 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 made in. Uh, like lipid soluble drugs are, are, are made in a DMSO carrier and and so some fantastic drugs have been invented and studied in animals and everything uh, and, and they're made in DMSO mm. and then and then they say wow this is a fantastic drug it works but the only way it's stable is in DMSO and that's toxic to human beings so what is the point mm. if like if you're going to develop a new drug and it's only uh, stable in DMSO that you can't give to human beings, like why would you even start that? So when we're looking at drug development, it's okay. Figure it out in a different carrier that you can give to humans. And if you, if you can't figure it out now, then don't study that drug. Or the study you should do is to figure out how to make it soluble in, in lipid or saline or, or D5 or something that you can give to a human being. So what's the point in making a drug you're never going to be able to give to a human being? And, and do you know how many drugs have been developed that way? The hundreds, thousands, right? And, and our guys started to do the same thing. I said, what's your drug in? DMSO. I said, well, then, like, guys, figure it out. Mm. And, and sometimes they haven't even checked that. So anyway, so I think it's like figure out that you can bring it to the bedside. And the same thing with EVLP. These are complex machines and everything. A lot of companies developed ex vivo organ perfusion machines that are huge and heavy that have to be at the donor hospital. Well, the donor hospital could be in Calgary or Vancouver or Sudbury or, or you know, Toronto East General. But, like, I didn't, what's the point in having this big, heavy machine when you don't even know it's going to work yet and having it so impractical that no one will use it? So when we designed the experiments for EVLP, we said we're going to first preserve the lung the way we always do in LPD, bring it back to home base and put it on EVLP here. And we did the experiments showing that you could store a lung for 12 hours on low potassium dextran, bring it back to TGH and for the next 12 hours work it and fix it and then transplant it. So basically, we showed we can pick up a lung anywhere in North America, bring it back, fix it, and transplant it. And so we brought, so to bring that clinically was totally easy. All we had to do was set up our lab perfusion system in the ORs. Mm. And we pick up lungs anyway the way we normally do. Other companies said, oh, you got to put it on the EVLP machine in the donor OR. Well, then you got something that takes three human beings to lift. And you got to carry it there every time mm. and costs a lot. And then you don't know it works. Mm. They didn't have the science first and they didn't have an implementation pathway. So my, my, my lesson is that when you start out an experiment, you find the problem that needs fixing. Mm. Okay. And you figure out what, what's your objective? What do you want to do? You want to figure out a way to use most of the lungs that are available to us. Okay, and then think of an implementation pathway that if this works, if you solve this problem, you can bring it to the bedside. I mean, I, you know, I write lots of high impact papers. I've published hundreds and hundreds of papers, but that's not the biggest reward. Mm. The biggest reward is you save lives doing it. So that means you had an implementation pathway in, in mind from the beginning. 
Now, the implementation pathway has to be, um, you know, uh, thought about because I'm a clinician and I know what I need to bring into the OR. How are you going to keep things in the OR? How are you going to keep it sterile? When you've got a lung here, you're working on in a perfusion system and then you want to take it to the back table and then into the patient. How, you know, all these things I know, right? Mm-hmm. And so as a, that's where my clinical supplements my my science, right? That, that we had that implementation pathway in mind. Okay. The other part, we just got a big grant to look at new frontiers in transplant to expand what we've done in lung to other organs. And then one of the other things that was very interesting was was uh, when you talk about change management and acceptance is is, is if I'm going to give you a lung that if I say, look, I've got a way that I can genetically modify this human lung so that it looks more like you and you won't reject it. It sounds like a gift, like, wow, fantastic. And I don't have to take that. That's what we're trying to do. But the funny thing is, and if you'll remember it with the COVID vaccines, even though it would save your life, how many people didn't want the vaccine? Oh, it's got a chip in it. Oh, it's going to change my grandchildren. Oh, it's this and that. Oh, it's it's Fauci and 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 uh, what's his name? Uh, you know, trying uh, trying to make money. So if I'm going to give you a gene modified lung, would you want it? Mm. You know, the people won't eat gene modified corn. Would they want a gene modified lung? I don't know. So a big part of our research is going to be that mm. to look at at one at at people's perceptions of gene-modified organs, and two, education. Like, you know what? You're going to have a lung transplant. You're going to take 10 different pills every day so that you don't reject it, and the pills are going to cause atherosclerosis, heart disease, osteoporosis, a risk of infection, risk of cancer, or I'm going to give you a gene-modified lung where you don't have to take those drugs, but it's gene-modified. But most people, if you say gene-modified, oh, I don't want that, that's bad. I'm not going to have gene-modified anything. But they'll take five toxic drugs to prevent rejection. Mm. So that's education. Mm. And that's change management, mm. right? And, and like I said, when, when, I, when I developed low-potassium dextran solution, when I developed ex vivo lung perfusion, when we, when we decided to transport organs by drone, I went to talk to the patients and said, we now we've done this and so on and so forth, and we, we'd like to do this study. They all like are willing to do it, and they also know there's some risk, mm. but they trust us because we're the same program that did the first lung transplant in the world, right? Mm. And, and honestly, the first one wasn't successful. Three patients at TGH died before they had the first successful so, so when Joel Cooper asked that patient and consented them for a transplant, they went into the operating room knowing that no one had ever, ever survived that operation, even though it had been tried 45 times. Mm-hmm. So yet they had the courage to say, maybe you've got it now because Dr. Cooper said, I have the research that showed that we could make this work. So, you know, it, it is an element of trust. And whether it's the trust of the actual patient who's going to be on your table, or whether trust of your administrators that that have a budget and have their necks on the line because of not meeting their budget or whatever, uh, or reputational risk of your institution, 
I mean, everybody has to balance these things. Mm. They love the fact that we're top four hospital in the world. And one of the things we're top four hospital in the world is we did the first successful lung, liver, pancreas, simultaneous transplant, right? Mm. Okay, that's cool. But somebody have to have the guts to put that guy through that and think, you know, we're going to get him through. That's a big amount of surgery for one body, right? Mm. And we were successful. Had we not been successful, it would have been, oh, you guys, what are you doing? Right? Uh, so, so it, it, but, but, you know, having done that, mm. they, they will trust you mm. when you come forward again. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I, you mentioned how you, you set expectations for people who work with you, like you talked about the MSO and how uh, you get them to think about these things beforehand. So maybe yeah. talk a little bit about creating a culture of innovation, you know, in your lab and among people who work with you, you know, setting those kinds of expectations and getting them to live up to these kinds of high expectations. So one is you inspire them, right? Like we have a, a problem. I mean, you know, when you, you've you seen a patient who can't breathe and is dying of lung failure, like how terrifying that is that you, you can't even walk from here to there and they're dying and, and so on. And you do a lung transplant and they're downhill skiing or playing basketball and it's fantastic or being somebody's grandpa or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it, it is fantastic. But then, you know, the patients start to reject the organs and, and they, they, you know, basically are, five-year survival is about 60% now, 60 or 70%. So a lot of them will die. Um, so, you know, you, you a lot of our, our research students come here to work with us, knowing that we're a leading research and innovation center in lung transplantation. And they want to be part of that problem, part of that fixing that problem. And, and, and you know, the... the the goal in our lab is to make a lung that'll last forever. I've said, look, we need to make a lung that the patient who once had lung failure will never face lung failure again. You know, so so that's our goal in the lab. And you know, we have some shining examples. The other day, I met a lady who had her lung transplant 32 years ago here. Okay, so 32 years ago, she would have been dead in six months, mm. and she's here today. She's been working a full life, family, everything she wanted to do. She's an old lady now, you know, which is fantastic. So it happens. It just doesn't happen often enough, right? Only a third of them will live that long. So, you know, but it it inspires you that it's possible and can we make that happen? And so, so I think that's what inspires the, the, the students. The other part of it is, that we've done it before we've done a bunch of these things so we can do it again mm-hmm. and so it's re- it's not like we're just um, you know wishing on a string and you know doing something that may not turn out to anything mm-hmm. the other thing that that we're do- doing is is it's very leading edge like you've heard of crispr gene editing right yeah so doing whole organ editing so instead of using adenoviral vectors or lenti vectors to gene modify lungs, we're now doing CRISPR editing, you know, which which is much more precise, less off-target effects, and the ability towards getting a lung that that will not be rejected. Mm-hmm. So now that's a really hard job. Like it's not 
going to be an easy task to achieve. Yeah. I think we're going to do it, though. I think we're going to do it soon. So, so that being a part of that and saying, wow, the first to edit a whole organ and, and, and do that in that way, that's pretty exciting, right? Yeah. So I think that, that that's the part. Um, most of the time, I, I, I often have students come and they say, oh, when I come to your lab, I want to study this, this, and this. And I said, look, just come. And when you get here, we'll talk. And then we'll, we'll, you know, and when they come, I say, just see what the other guys are doing, what the other students are doing, see all the projects we got, and, you know, take a few weeks to do that, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk about what will be your project, and mm-hmm. so on. And sometimes I have some projects where I actually just need people doing stuff. Other times I want them to see, do I want to do gene editing? Do I want to grow mm-hmm. new, new lungs? Do I want to look at inflammation? Do I want to look at artificial lungs? You know, and, and what, what, what would you like to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always better if you're doing something you enjoy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, it also opens their eyes because they come with a thing like, okay, I'm going to work on rejection or something. But what we're doing is, is, <laughs> is much bigger than that and, and is really a candy store for them. <laughs> so I think it's good to, to give them that kind of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm mindful of your time, so I just want to ask three more questions. Okay. The first one is, uh, what's the source of your ideas? I know you talked about how uh, your clinical practice informs, you know, the way that you think about the process of bringing things to bedside. Uh, where do you get the ideas from? So let's say you, the day you thought about drones and delivering lungs through drones, uh, how did this inspiration come? Yeah, you know, I think it, it comes from being curious. Like, you know, I, I mean, I like new technology. I'm amazed with, like, just the fact that I get in my car and Waze comes on and, it, you know, like, that's cool. I mean, that's so stupid simple, but that's AI that helps me every day. And, and it just works, right? So I like cool things like that. Um, and drones and planes are cool. But, you know, I, I, I'd heard of like Amazon and Walmart wanting to deliver stuff by drone and I thought that's pretty cool and it hasn't happened. They've been talking about it for like 10 years, yeah. right? So why hasn't it happened? Well, there's a lot of barriers to it. It's hard to fly a drone in the city and so on. Mm. On the other hand, I look at the fact that we, we send, every time there's a multi-organ donor, we send five Learjets to the one donor hospital each Learjet and each surgical team picks up one organ that weighs two kilograms or less and goes to their own hospital. Mm. Just think of that. Each Learjet flight is $20,000. Okay? So it's such a waste. It's not scalable. And then, you know, you go, there's a delay in the donor hospital. The, the donor's been delayed. All the pilots time out. Then mm. you've got to get new pilots. And you get delayed more. When there's a weather problem, you can't fly. Mm. You know, so many times we've lost organs because of planes. And and how are we going to make, you know, I've said, I, I, again, where do I get my ideas? I want organ exchange to be like getting your tires changed. You go mm. in, you get it done, and you come out with new lungs, come out with new. And you know what a hip operation is like that. Yeah. You can go in, get a new hip, and go home this afternoon. Okay? We can make lung transplant or heart transplant like that. But we're never going to scale it if we don't make reliable organs, unlimited organs, and better transport systems. So when I, when I saw the opportunity that, you know, we could use these drones, and drones 
we're developing clean energy drones to solve a problem for the planet, mm. right? So all our drones are electric. Then I realized the problem is flying in the city. You can't fly easy. That's why Amazon hasn't done it, because the GPS systems get interfered by radio frequency waves, like updrafts from the, from the big buildings, mm. uh, and the fact that you have to be reliable enough to fly over people's heads. So we developed drones that would be reliable enough to fly over people's heads that had a GPS system that wouldn't be interfered with by radio frequency waves in, in a city and, and could be safe enough to carry an organ. So if something goes wrong with the drone, you know, the engine fails or anything, automatically the engines will turn off, the ballistic parachute fires, and the organ comes down to the ground. Mm. So you say the organ and I developed the, the carrying container to keep the organ at the right temperature for up to 24 hours uh, so so you bring the technology together and everything and you bring an urgency of purpose like we're not delivering toilet paper we're delivering a life we're saving life right mm -hmm. so there's a reason so navigation Canada transport Canada uh, the airport controllers police, orange, everybody was on site. Wow, that's so cool you guys are doing that. What can we do to help, mm. right? Everybody on site, like that's a cool thing. So we flew a flight from Toronto Western to Toronto General to show it's possible. Mm. To me, that was, to the field, it was a huge achievement. We can fly in one of the most populated cities in the world. We can fly in downtown Toronto, we can mm. fly anywhere. Yeah. So now what we're doing is we're learning how to fly in and out of Pearson. So we're building a drone port at Pearson and another drone port at the top of TGH. Yeah. And we're going to define a, an airspace corridor for drones for organs between YYZ and TGH. Yeah. So now, again, that's a world first. Yeah. There are no corridors for drones yet. So right now, the, the model will be if it comes in to, to Pearson, nose to nose to our drone, flies right to TGH, avoids all downtown traffic, and cuts that to a 10-minute trip instead of a 45-minute or hour trip. Mm. That's not a big win, but it's another step. Mm. But we also have drones now mm. that can go 1,000 kilometers. Mm. So that means we can go straight to the donor hospital, pick up the lung, and come straight to TGH, avoid everything and learn how to fly through commercial airspace safely, right? Yes. So, so the idea, you know, the, the ideas come from keeping your eyes open as you walk around, mm. you know, and, and seeing opportunities that, wow, if you can use it, why can, why, a, a lung weighs two kilograms, why do you need a whole Learjet, right? Yeah. You don't. And maybe talk a little bit about evaluation. You've talked about research as a way to show data to the patients, but talk about quality improvement, change management, you know, how you evaluate what you're doing day to day and how you improve it, you know, bit by bit. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think you, you need to continue to evaluate and say, is the system that, that you're developing actually improving the situation? And by improving the situation, again, it goes back to why we hear the patient where the patient's doing better, surviving longer, having a better experience through all of this, are we benefiting society that way? And then the issue is, is 
evaluation by the usual scientific method mm. you know like like your your hypothesis did you prove it and and are your results better than the way you work one of the other important um, metrics is cost right because technology continues to increase and increase and increase and improve how is any country going to afford to pay for these advances that we're inventing so, so part of it is that as we improve the technology we'll actually make it more cost effective mm. so that start to make it sustainable and scalable so I think that's an important metric mm. I think you know, in anything I've done in surgery, whatever I tell the people like this, do it best, do it the right way, and get the best result first. I don't care what it costs, just do it. Once you can do it right, then we'll figure out how to do it cheaply. Okay. Yeah. So in anything we do, so so that that's that's the the way I work at at the evaluation. Doing it right, show that you can do it, uh, show that it's better, that your results are superior. Then we'll go figure out how to scale it mm. and make it less expensive. Mm. Yeah, so finally, um, you do a lot of things. You're the vice chair of innovation, you're director of Toronto Lung Transplant Program, director of Latina Thoracic Research Laboratories, surgeon in chief, uh, professor, senior scientist. So um, I want you to talk a little bit about your day to day. How does that look like? Um, my day-to-day is pretty busy and and that I have a lot going on and and I have a lot around me I have quite a team so I don't do everything myself Um, but my days are long I mean I get up early and I get to bed late uh, and and, uh, you know I've still got a lot of emails and things you saw I don't know when we booked this it was quite a long time ago wasn't it yeah Uh, Yeah. two months ago I think yeah yeah so I mean so things like this, it, it you know, unfortunately, I had to wait. But so, so I have to scale things uh, and and plan it well, because mm. I still also have a life, and I do go home and and have some fun as well. But um, the the issue is, you know, I I, I sort of um, plan it like you know, Mondays I have clinic and and I operate. Wednesdays is my lab day and research. That's today. Uh, Thursday is mostly administration, Friday morning is clinic again, and Friday afternoon is meetings, whatever meetings come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then transplants just happen when they happen, right? So that, that that's a bit more um, uh, variable. So so I, I do have to set up time. Time management is very important. Um, I, I've always been very... Uh, an early adopter of technology to improve my time management. You know, I have the ability to, I have a house out in the country and I have my house here and my office desk and I have the ability to use Dropbox or something like that, OneDrive. Yeah, Yeah, well, like 10 years before Dropbox became available, I had a Dropbox function Mm -hmm. where I could put my, my computer guy set it up so I could keep my files there so when I got home, I said, oh, shit, I forgot that file at <laughs> the office, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Or it's on my laptop or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just moved with stuff like that and mm-hmm. I had the first BlackBerry and the first this and, you know, obviously I'm on an iPhone now, but, <laughs> but you really have to, to, to again, it's, it's like, how did I find the drone? It's mm-hmm. like when I see uh, things that, that improve your productivity and your timing and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, 
then I, 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 you know, I jump on it early uh, to be able to do that. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Keshavji. Uh, it was really, really great and interesting conversation. I'm really happy to talk to you. Uh, I, I saved an ask to the last. Uh, is it possible to shadow you for uh, a leadership component? Like, would they would would it be best for someone to shadow you to see, you know, what you do as a leader, how you drive innovation, how you drive change? Yeah. You, 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 I, I mean, it'd be interesting because it's it's so embedded in what I do. Mm. Um, when I've had people follow me, they'd usually get exhausted because they don't <laughs> like I'm going here, I'm going there. Like today was a crazy day. Mm. I. I Started with some meetings. I had a, a PhD defense of a student I'm co-supervising. Mm. Then I went and helped a colleague in the OR. Then I had my research meeting. Then I had a biobank meeting, and that which is all research stuff. And then this interview with you. Mm. So, I mean, talking to you is part of leadership. Mm. Okay? Like I could say I don't have time. I didn't have time, right? But mm. I made time for you. But I also made time because Catherine told me to make time for you, right? <laughs> So I respect her. So and, and but but also, it's an important part of leadership, right? Mm. Like people want to know how did you do what you did, mm. right? And, and and you can't help people, you can't show people if you don't take that kind of time. Mm. So my leadership part, you know, the biobank meeting I had was looking at scaling and creating a you know a company and and how we provide biospecimens and so on that spun out of our. Our lung transplant program so that's kind of leadership new pathways yeah. new territory can we really sell specimens uh you know is that how would we do it is the consenting is the legal part you know so that was a leadership thing that's just plugged into one of my meetings um but uh, on the on the other hand that uh, you know so so it would be hard to to know just that. I mean, most time when, when students follow either shadow or work, they either work with me in the lab or they work in the OR or they, you know, um, and this is, but, but the important thing that you have to learn as a clinician, investigator, leader, and so on, is how do you put all this, these things together in one career? Mm. The, what I really like is I'm, I'm, I'm still a damn good surgeon and I do a good job. I get patients from all over the country and the world because I can do the complex surgery. That's my one number one passion, being mm. a thoracic surgeon. Mm. But I never gave that up to be surgeon-in-chief, to be a world-class researcher, to be an administrator. I took all on those other things as well, mm. you know, and, and that's also a different choice. I did work very hard, uh, you know, and, and um, sometimes that's not normal uh but you know i always said to people as soon as i stop enjoying it i'll drop all those things right if you don't enjoy it then don't do it mm. so you know i think uh, i'm i'm moving into a a new job now actually chief of innovation for all of uhn mm. as of J july 1st mm. so i'm surgeon in chief anymore <laughs> uh, but but uh, that part is good i feel very lucky because I'm actually going to get to do the stuff that's mostly fun, right, uh, <laughs> in terms of what I've been doing. Mm.